you would open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll read verse 31 this morning. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Good morning, everybody. We have a really good number of guests at our assembly today, and I want to tell you something. But what I say applies to you, but not only to you, to everyone present and to everyone in the world. You have no idea how much God loves you. You have no idea how much God loves you. You know, there are people in the world that really will look at God and say, I don't need Him. And there's people in the world that will think about God and they'll say, I do need Him, but I don't understand how He could love somebody like me. You have no idea how much God really loves you. It is like a breath of fresh air. It is like an oasis in the desert. I am speaking about 1 Corinthians 13. Open your Bible to that passage. There are copies of the Bible in most of the pews, the back of most of the pews. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And one of the things that we're going to see is this. When love is absent, God is absent in our lives. But not because He wants to be. He loves us far more than we could ever imagine. But when love is absent in us... God's blessing and goodness is absent too. The Bible says God is love. 1 John 4 and verse 8. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16. And what I'd like for you to understand is this. It's possible for a form of love to exist, but the highest form of love, love for God and for His will to be missing in action. That's really what was happening in the church at Corinth. Here's a group of Christians that have all kinds of miraculous gifts. Here's a group of people that agree on many things doctrinally. But they have forgotten about the place, the priority of love in Christians' lives. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in the Bible, it can stand alone. And I suspect that you have heard many sermons or classes that have just dealt with 1 Corinthians 13 without considering the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians. And you know what? That's fine. 
I have heard and preached a few sermons like that, but I've heard sermons that deeply moved me to think more about God and what He's like and how I should reflect Him when I've heard 1 Corinthians 13. There's an old statement that I'll explain that goes something like this. A text without a context can become a pretext for a proof text. A text without context can become a pretext for a proof text. In other words, you can see a verse that can be taken out of the Bible, a passage that really doesn't mean... What, it's, what, it, what it says. I remember buying a card uh, because I thought it was so funny. Years ago, that said, bow down and worship me. And then it gave the reference. But the reference was to Matthew chapter 4 when Satan says to Jesus, bow down and worship me. It really did say that. And that wasn't the intent of the people that put the card out, I don't think. But they took a passage out of context. And so it really said something entirely different than what they intended. But I'm going to tell you what. There's so much said in the Bible about love. And love is so critical to all that is Christian. 1 Corinthians 13 can stand alone. And we can understand what it's trying to say in a lot of ways. It's a masterpiece. It's beautiful as it deals with the subject of love. But what I want you to do is to look at it with me just a little bit as far as its context. 1 Corinthians was written to a group of people in 1 Corinthians 13 that were having a problem loving each other. I think it's one thing to love God... I think it's another thing to love the Bible. And I may even love preaching. But to love people. Life gets kind of messy when you try that, doesn't it? To love people. And when you look at 1 Corinthians, what is going on in the context is they are bragging and fussing with one another about their miraculous gifts. They're bragging and fussing with each other concerning these gifts. 1 Corinthians 13 is in the middle of a section where Paul is talking to them about the use and abuse of the gifts that they had been given by God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it deals with the endowment and interrelatedness of these miraculous gifts. It deals with the endowment and the interrelatedness of these gifts. There's a wide variety of miraculous gifts discussed in 1 Corinthians 12. But what Paul says, they all come from God... He's the source. He's the one that endows, that gives these gifts. He's the giver. And that they're all connected. They all have a divine purpose behind them. Now that brings us to chapter 13. Chapter 13 deals 
with the exercise of spiritual gifts, with the exercise of spiritual gifts, and with the excellency of love. In other words, what Paul is saying as an apostle of God is this. All of the miraculous gifts that one might have, speaking to the Corinthians, all the gifts that you might have, whatever talents and abilities you might have, are to be exercised in an environment, a sphere of love for God. And when they're not, it detracts mightily from those gifts. To the point that any gift minus love exercised without love for God and others amounts to nothing. More about that in a minute. Now, look, if you will, at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Miraculous gifts, and according to chapter 14, are to be exercised to the building up or edification of the church. Not to give me the big head to make me more arrogant or to look down on someone else and say, my gifts and my abilities are greater than yours. They're more important. But they are to be exercised to the strengthening and building up of the church. So everything that Paul is talking about in this section really revolves around the center. Love, our gifts, must be utilized within the sphere and framework of love for God and others. Let me give you something of the structure of the passage. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. And really, it breaks down into three very logical, practical parts. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, deals with the indispensability of love. The indispensability of love. Verses 4 through 7, secondly, deal with the characteristics, the qualities of love. What love does, what love won't do, that's what verses 4 through 7 deal with. And then verses 8 through 13 deal thirdly with the enduring nature of love. The enduring nature of love. Put all three together. 1 Corinthians 13 deals with the indispensability, characteristics, and enduring nature of love. Now go back to 1 Corinthians 12, 31 that was read in our scripture reading by Thomas this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 31. Really, this is the hinge 
that the door of 1 Corinthians 13 comes from. The hinge. Great concepts swing on little bitty words. Well, this whole chapter swings on the idea that love is the more excellent way. Love is the more excellent way. Desire earnestly the greater gifts. One chapter over, the same exact expression is used for desiring spiritual gifts. In the first century church at Corinth, these were miraculous. Desire these. Why should you desire and pursue having these types of gifts? Because they can strengthen and build up the church when they operate in the sphere, the environment of love. But here in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, Desire earnestly the greater gifts. And that's exactly what the problem was there, Ron. The gifts that they were emphasizing were the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. And the gifts that they were failing to emphasize enough, the blessings, was the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Get that, man. That's worth it. That's worth the price of admission to come into worship today. Because it is easy for people to emphasize what is secondary and to forget what is primary. As Christians, they needed to possess the fruit of the Spirit. And they're busy thinking about how important it is to have miraculous gifts so that they can brag and boast and compare. Now, thankfully, there's no bragging or boasting or comparing done by anyone in the church nowadays. It's all about Loving the way God loves us. We still struggle with some of the same things, even though we do not have miraculous gifts as they did in the first century. Let's move on. Let's start looking at this particular passage and what it's got to say. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 and the indispensability of love. To the degree that love is absent, everything is missing. Notice verse 1, verse 2, verse 3 as they deal with the indispensability of love. And each passage repeats this expression. But have not what? But have not love. A possibility is mentioned, but have not love. A contrast is being stated, but have not love. And then the results. Notice verse 1. If I have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. See that? Notice verse 2, but have not love, I am nothing. It's interesting to notice that Paul goes from the second person in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. You need to desire the more excellent way. And he goes in chapter 13 beginning and he says, I, I. I. He gets really personal. 
And his point is, is this applies to all of us. And then in verse 3, But have not love, I gain nothing. Now look at each verse a little more thoroughly. Here's the possibility and the stark contrast that's going to be made. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I speak in the greatest of all possible languages, if I communicate in a phenomenal way, if I am amazingly eloquent, but have not love, I am just noise. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Sounding brass clanging cymbals. You know, most orchestras will have Symbols and a section. But that's not the only section. We don't make the sweetest music, really no music at all, if our language and communication is minus love. Some people, I told them the truth. That's wonderful. But Paul just said, you can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if you have not love, it can be meaningless and nothing but noise to people who hear it. They will not care how much we know until they know how much we care. And that's so true of the Lord the more we know He cares for us, the more we should desire to love and serve Him. Verse 2. Notice what is done here in verse 2. Prophecy, understanding, all knowledge and faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I'm nothing, he says. If communication language without love equals nothing, you know what, that's true in a home. A person can say, I love you, but don't just say it, show it, amen? We're to love in deed and in truth, 1 John 3, 18, Correct? But a person can be very gifted and very talented. They may typically be the smartest, most gifted, most talented person in a room. But without the exercise of love and doing and utilizing their gifts in the framework, the environment of love, Paul says, I am nothing. And this is so interesting because as an apostle of Jesus, he had more miraculous ability than any of the Corinthians. 
And yet he says, because of your boasting and bragging and fussing and fighting with one another about spiritual gifts, what you're doing is showing that something greater has been left behind and it's too big of a thing to leave behind. The display of godly love one for another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples by your love one for another. Jesus said... John 13, 34, and 35. The Bible would talk about love one another with a pure heart fervently. 1 Peter 1, 22. To let love of one another continue. Hebrews 13, verses 1 and 2. To stir one another up. To provoke one another to love and good works. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. There was a lot of provoking being done at Corinth, but not necessarily to love and good works. Notice verse 3. Notice 1 Corinthians 13, 3. If I give all my goods to the poor, if I give my body to be burned... But have not love, I gain nothing. The possibility, the contrast, the result. I gain nothing. What did Jesus tell the rich young ruler to do in Mark chapter 10? Didn't he say, go out and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me? The rich young ruler was unable to comply, refused to comply. And that was, in his case, an indication that his love for God and his love for others wasn't as great as his love for stuff. Do you and I ever encounter similar difficulties? It's easy to be hard on the rich young ruler... But I suspect were he alive today, we would all be gathered around him and if he identified as a member at Westside, we'd probably make him a deacon within a year because he had so much going for him. But he had a real love problem. You see, what I want you to see is this. 1 Corinthians 13 applies to the church at Corinth. No question about it. It was initially written with that in mind. But it also applies to the church at Westside. Amen. But not only does it apply to the church at Westside, it applies to you and to me individually. Do I tend to love things and use people or do I love people and use things to encourage others because of my love for God we've looked at love it's indispensability now let's look at this one from verses 4 through 7 love it's characteristics tonight Lord willing we'll look at verses 8 through 13 uh, but let's look at verses 4 through 7 We've looked at the indispensability of love, now the characteristics of love. And here's what's cool about this. 
What the passage does, the way it says what it says, is really amazing. Not just what it says, it's inspired, but the way that the Holy Spirit chose to convey this through Paul is amazing. Here's why. First of all, you have a pair. You have a pair of items concerning love and how love acts. These are all actions. Actions, characteristics, qualities. Love is patient or suffers long and is kind. That's the first pair. It's positive. This is followed by four negative pairs. I'm from the South, I'm from Tennessee. Sometimes you can know what something is by knowing what it's not. And so what happens here is that Paul says, love acts like this. And here's four pairs of ways that love doesn't act. Now think about that. Because those four ways that love doesn't act were ways that were way too common in the church at Corinth. And they may be far too common at Westside. And they may be more true than they ought to be in our lives as people who are Christians who belong to Christ. And then a pair is given with a positive and a negative. Love rejoices not with iniquity or sin, but love rejoices with the truth. There's the negative, there's the positive. And then notice verse 7. There's a quartet of alls, A-L-L words. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You talk about harmony... (laughs) You talk about beautiful harmony. Harmony is beautiful in the body of Christ when the love of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 is real and the norm. And the same is true in a Christian's life. We sing, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. Well, when you think about 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7... That's so true with Jesus. And so getting back to this, 1 Corinthians 13 ought to be applied in a marriage. 1 Corinthians 13 ought to be applied in a family. 1 Corinthians 13 ought to be applied in an individual's life. But 1 Corinthians 13 ought to be read before every elders meeting, every business meeting, and every time a church faces conflict. It ought to be read. Now let's go through these briefly. Notice what Paul does. He personifies love. Love, love suffers long and is kind. He personifies love. 
Brother Milton, when the day comes, people look at you and me and think that we are an embodiment of love because of how much we love Jesus. That'll bless lives. Love suffers long. And the word here, I love it, is a word that means having a long fuse with people. Brother Bill, that can be so hard sometimes. I'd have no trouble with people, with patience rather, if it weren't for people and it weren't for circumstances. That's what makes me have troubles with patience. But a long fuse with people. Do you have a short fuse with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have a short fuse? With your spouse? Do you have a short fuse with your family? The idea is there may be those who test my patience, but I will have a long fuse that shows my Lord. There may be those who test my patience, but I want to have a long fuse that reflects my God. In 2 Peter 3, 9, the Bible says that God is long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Years ago, there was an atheist by the name of Robert Ingersoll, and he loved to have debates with religious people. An atheist is one who claimed that there is no God, to know there's no God. And one of the things that Ingersoll would repeatedly do is, if there is a God in heaven, I ask him to strike me dead for what I'm saying in the next five minutes. And then he would look at his pocket watch. And when five minutes elapsed, he said, See, there mustn't be a God or he would have struck dead a person like me for denying his existence. And one of the individuals he debated when he said that said, Mr. Ingersoll... You cannot exhaust the long-suffering of God in five minutes. Aren't you glad? Aren't you? And yet sometimes mine has only been a matter of seconds, if that. My patience has run out. Love suffers long and is kind... And what this has to do with, brothers and sisters and friends, is this. A person can suffer mistreatment from another and return good. It actually can happen, y'all. Even though we live in a culture and we live in a country where if someone does something uh, to us, payback is sweet. Romans 12, 21, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And so the idea is, I will practice kindness to others. And I will do what pleases my Lord, even 
when they did something to me to hurt me. That can be hard sometimes, can it? A lot of moms and dads in this room, and one of the most difficult uh, conversations you ever have with a child is how to treat someone that has mistreated them and how they ought to do that. Isn't that a tough conversation sometimes? Look at the negatives. Negative number one. Love is not jealous, does not envy. Love is not jealous, does not envy. The idea is this. Jealousy is wishing you had what belongs to another. The Bible repeatedly condemns jealousy. It's in nearly every catalog of sin, big listing of sin that you'll see in the Bible. But envy is even worse. Matthew 27, 18, for envy, Jesus was delivered up. They just didn't wish Jesus didn't have what he had. And that they had it. They wished he would have never had it. And so they wanted to take it. Envy is hateful. Jealousy can turn into something really fast. Think about this. In Genesis 3, when the serpent, when Satan tells Eve, you shall not surely die, but you'll be like God if you eat this fruit. Do you think that she started thinking that God, I'm going to be jealous of him. Maybe he's not being completely honest and forthcoming with us. How about the older brother in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15? He tells his father, I've been here always. I have always complied with your wishes. And you never had a celebration like this for me and my friends. Isn't envy and jealousy every bit as bad as the obstinance and rebellion that the prodigal son showed? The older brother's no better than the younger one. Both had a love problem for their father. Notice this one, love does not brag, is not arrogant. You may have, and I love the expression, love is not puffed up. Love doesn't have the big head. You think those things existed at Corinth in the church? I do. And what Paul is saying without making the specific point, this applies to you, is this applies to you. And love doesn't act that way. Continue. Love does not behave rudely, unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Love is not rude. Love does not act 
selfishly. In talking with a lot of couples who are having marriage issues, it's a vivid reminder of how prone we all can be, even in relationships that are the most important, to get selfish at times. Notice the Word of God again. Love is not easily provoked. Love does not keep score. There are people who are historians and accountants. They recall every slight, every insult, every hurt. And I'm going to tell you, if that sounds something like you, it's not healthy. And it's not right. As a person that has had a tendency to do just that in my own life, it has always been something that could wreck my relationship with God. And it can wreck yours too. There are people in churches that do not speak to one another because of something that was said years ago. There are people in a congregation that will not even look at each other and greet one another with a welcome and with a sense of brotherliness and warmth because something happened years ago. And the real problem behind that is this. Are the people reflecting the Spirit of Christ. One thing I'd like to say is this. I don't believe that everything will be completely settled this side of eternity. And we all may have brokenness and hurts and some wounds that we carry with us in life. But I do not want my attitude toward another member of God's family to keep me out of God's eternal presence. And I do not want my attitude toward another brother or sister in God's family to keep me from relating to them in a way that pleases my God. Amen, church. Now notice verse 7. And this is an ascending order. And that can be overlooked if you're not careful. Love in all things. This quartet. Four alls. Love bears all things. Love bears all things. And the idea is to support, to cover, to protect. You see, I want you to know that this passage is not telling us to have a gullible, naive, uh, undiscerning, foolish type of love. This passage wants us to protect and support and cover with love the way that God would. You got it? 
Some churches have got to air the dirty laundry that may occur within a church and an entire community hears about it. I would hope that good judgment would make us careful there. Love believes all things. Love believes all things. Love is not overly cynical or suspicious. If you are a person that immediately rushes to the worst case scenario anytime you hear something about a brother or sister, stop it. Love is not overly cynical or suspicious. I didn't say love was naive or dumb, but neither is it overly suspicious and overly cynical. I believe their spiritual gifts, all right, not miraculous. I believe that there are people that have the not-so-spiritual gift of cynicism, the not-so-spiritual gift of suspiciousness, the not-so-spiritual gift of being able to see a cup half-empty even when it's three-quarters full. And that does not bless the cause of Christ. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. And that word hope carries with it two ideas. Expectation, anticipation. You can expect that something might happen, that it's a possibility. But to anticipate it helps you. Helps you. I fully expect the Lord to come in the second coming. And I fully anticipate and joyfully anticipate that things are going to be a lot better then than they are now. Love hopes all things. Brother Steve Horton, that means that there's going to be times in this life that your, your faith may be taking a hit. And, and doubt enters your mind and maybe your soul. You think it might of Job's? But still he hoped in God. He had an expectation and a confident anticipation that God could somehow rework everything even though he couldn't see it because of what he was going through. He believed in God. He hoped in God. I think that that is the constant refrain of the psalmist, Terry. Hope in God. Your faith may be taking a hit and some doubts may be coming along, but God is our anchor. Hope in Him. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19. You'll be delivered one way or the other. Romans 8, 24. Finally, love endures all things. Again, love is not naive or dumb or stupid. But love endures. And write a circle around or an underline on that word endure. 
there may be times when I don't think I can bear it, believe it, or hope anymore. But I can bear and believe and hope because of the one who endured the cross. If he endured the cross, I can bear mine, believing and hoping that he will do what he promises for the faithful. Anybody that thinks they can exhaust 1 Corinthians 13 is wrong. And you have likely heard many lessons. But I hope and pray that what I said today from this passage has blessed you. And that you will desire to love the Lord and to love His church. And to love the lost. And to love your spouse. And to love your family and to love in a way that reflects His love. His love is always self-giving, isn't it? When you think about God, here is how He is different from us. And I know it must, I know it must have pained Paul to, re, to write this in a way. Because although he is a wonderful, godly man, far better than I will ever be, As he writes about love, he must have understood that there were probably times in his life when he didn't think properly about love and act properly concerning love. Any more than Peter or the rest. But the fact is, Jesus is always the embodiment of love. May it be our fervent prayer to reflect more the love of Christ in our bodies. If you're not a Christian through faith, repentance, and baptism, come to Him this very hour. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. You are not someone who can go through life without Jesus even if you think you are. And you are not someone that is so bad, so awful, that He couldn't love you because He does. He does. It's who He is. For those of us who are Christians, maybe it would be good to pray every day, this week for sure, Help me to better reflect the love of Jesus in the home, at work, at rest, with my mouth, with my actions. Let us stand and sing.